Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Right there, Revelation will be in chapter one this morning, and like I said, that may leave some of you scratching your heads um, as to why we are in the book of Revelation because it's Christmas season, right? It looks beautiful in here, by the way. Thank you uh, to those who stayed to deck the halls last Sunday. It looks beautiful. Uh, love the wreaths, love the lights. Hate putting all of it up, but it looks pretty once it is. So, uh, so thanks to those who helped with all of that. But you might be thinking it's Revelate or it's Christmas. So why Revelation? Revelation isn't Christmas. Christmas is the manger and it's the shepherds and it's the wise men and it's, it's cookies and cider and ho, ho, ho and all of that type of stuff. And Revelation, there ain't none of that. Revelation is the rapture and the tribulation and the beast and the antichrist and the dragon and all of that type of stuff, right? Like we mentioned earlier in the service though, Advent means arrival. That's when we celebrate the season of Advent. It means we are celebrating the arrival of the Son of God to earth. Advent simply means the arrival. And so Revelation is really the book all about the second advent of Christ. While Christmas is the story of the first advent of Christ, Revelation is the story of the second advent when he comes to wrap all of this stuff up and begin eternity, begin his eternal kingdom where we will rule and reign with him forever and we will worship him forever because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But Christmas is all about his first advent. When he came in the manger to redeem humanity. And you'd be absolutely right. Christmas and Revelation, they don't seem to jive, right? Because this is the time of year where we commemorate and we celebrate that first advent. It's beautiful. It's full of hope and joy and peace and faith. And we should celebrate that to the hill. But what if I told you this? What if I told you that for every one prophecy of the first advent of Christ, of the nativity of Christ, that there are eight prophecies for the second coming of Jesus Christ in scripture. For every one mention of the nativity, there are eight mentions of the return of Christ in scripture. And do you know what that tells us? It tells us, church, that we are always to keep our eyes up and keep our eyes forward to what we have in Christ. Not just what he's done on the cross, not just the empty tomb, which we must not forget those, but we must not stop there for we look forward to the return of Christ when he sets all of this right. When tears are wiped away, when sin and darkness are defeated, when death is no more for anyone, when there's a new heaven and a new earth and his kingdom is set right. And I think this is important because for us to really understand the magnitude and the miracle of Christmas, the first advent, we have to get, we have to look at it through the lens of revelation, through the second advent of Christ. And this is really what the book of Revelation is all about. Revelation is really all about the culmination of the whole story. It's the final destination of the gospel is what Revelation is. It's the final fulfillment of all the promises and the prophecies that we trust in and that we know that because God is perfect and because God is faithful that every promise he makes he will fulfill, right? That was a little doubtful, right? Every promise that God makes he will fulfill, right church? Right? It's the full unveiling of God's masterpiece of history and the full expression of his majesty and of his power and of his sovereignty and his faithfulness to every generation. Come the time that we begin to live revelation. 
God is going to make good on every promise he has made as though he has, and he has already made good on all so many, but there are a few more promises left that are yet to come. And the thing about this is the hope that we have is those promises are just as sure as that they've already happened. That's the kind of hope that we have in Jesus. That's the kind of hope that we have in him. And this is what Revelation is really about. It's about the unveiled glimpse of Jesus Christ in his full glory. It's the most unveiled glimpse of Jesus' glory that we have until we actually stand face to face with him in heaven ourselves. And church, I hope you're looking forward to that day when you'll stand face to face with the Savior. I hope you're looking forward to the day when you stand before him and you look into those eyes who looked upon your sin and said, I am willing to redeem you. I hope you're looking forward to that day because that's what Revelation is about. It's about the unveiling of the glory of Jesus. But I think sometimes when we go to the book of Revelation, because it's wild, and if you've never read the book of Revelation, you've never looked at it, it is wild. It is crazy. It is some nutso stuff. You look at it and you're like, okay, this is a vision that John was given on Patmos. He must have eaten pepperoni pizza and Thanksgiving leftovers at like midnight before he went to bed because this dream he had is nuts. There's dragons and beasts and all kinds of stuff going on in there. And many times we look at that and we're like, this doesn't look anything like the rest of the Bible. And we try to make sense of it. And what we do is many times we look at it through the wrong lens, which leads us down some pretty crazy places. Some people really get into the end times and into the prophecy and into the book of Revelation. And I remember growing up as a kid that was born in, and this is hurtful to say, in the late 1900s. This is what my daughter told me the other day. She said, Dad, you were born in 1980, right? And I said, yeah, I was born in the 80s. And she goes, so the late 1900s then. And I'm like, ah, that sounds awful to say that, you know? But I remember, do you remember around 2000 and all this Y2K business going on? Remember all that stuff? And everybody's like, the world's going to end in, in 2000. Um, everybody was stocked up. Some of you still have food stored in your bunker because you were prepped for Y2K and it didn't, and it actually never came, right? But I remember around that time, people started getting really into the end time stuff, man. There was like this whole sweep of like, what's going to happen at the end of the world? And so they opened up Revelation and started like mapping it all out. And actually, even before that, just a little bit, there was this guy back in the 80s. Um, his name was Edgar Wisnant. Anybody know the name Edgar Wisnant? All right, some of you do, and you don't want to admit it, right? Edgar Wisnant was a NASA engineer who also loved to study the book of Revelation. So you put spaceships with scripture, and this is what you're going to get. This guy was a mathematical genius, and he thought that he could mathematically calculate, and he had broken some code within prophecy that he developed this book and released it back in 1987, I believe it was late 1987, said 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1987. Anybody remember hearing about this book? Anybody? Some of you ain't raising your hand, and I know you are because I've heard you talk about it, okay? Uh, he released this book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And he had done all these calculations, and he wrote this book saying he's coming back in 1988, and here's 88 reasons why. And he said, and I also know he's going to come back somewhere between September 11th and September, 20, and September 14th because that's the time of the Jewish Feast of Rosh Hashanah. Because that will be the new year for 1988 for, on the Jewish calendar. So guess what happened? September that week came, Rosh Hashanah came and went, and Jesus did not come back. So all of a sudden, and, and here's the thing, this book sold over 2 million copies in its first two weeks of print. 
Okay? Two million copies. A lot of people were buying into this. Guess what? It, it, it didn't happen. All right? So you would think that everybody said, okay, Edgar, good shot, good try, but, you know, we're just going to go back and stick to this stuff. No, Edgar wrote a sequel. He comes back about mid-1988 and said, you know what? I made one miscalculation, and now I have 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1989. <laughs> okay? And he sold another couple million copies on that one. And again, it's 2022, and Jesus didn't come back, right? Um, so... There have been people that have been trying to predict the return of Christ for a long time. And here's what, here's what, here's what wisdom is saying. Because people began to kind of push back against him saying, the Bible says, Jesus himself says, and we read it out of Matthew this morning, that we do not know the day or the hour when Jesus will return. According to what Jesus said, he doesn't even know the day until God the Father says, go get my kids. Okay? And here's what wisdom says. I don't know the day or the hour. I just know the week. All right, so that's kind of where he was on that, okay? The week came and went, and it all kind of went away. And before you think I'm mocking this, I just want to tell you, I know some of you have copies of 1988 and 1999 on your bookshelf, and they're sitting next to the, series, the Left Behind series and the Thief in the Night VHS copies that you've all got, right? Because we all kind of know what all that stuff is, right? There's nothing wrong with looking forward to the return of Christ, but sometimes when we do that, we're looking for the wrong things in that message. It's not about finding out when he's going to come back and exactly, exactly how things are going to happen and what the dragon is really going to look like. It's about knowing this, that Jesus is returning. And when he returns, he is going to make all things right. Revelation really isn't about us. And that's what a lot of it is. That Jesus is coming back in 1988 and all that stuff is really about us. What's going to happen to us when Jesus comes back? Will we be here for the tribulation? Will we not? Will we all of this type of stuff that people try to predict what's going to take place? Some people are pre-trib and post-trib and all this. The more I study it, I, I, I lean towards a pre-tribulation view of Scripture. But I'll say this. The more I look at it, I'm pan-trib. You know what that means? It's going to all pan out because God's got it under control. Right? Revelation really isn't about us. It's about Jesus. Matter of fact, this word isn't really about us. It's a matter, it's about Jesus. This book is meant to point us to Jesus because that's the best place we need to be. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. If you like to underline or highlight, you need to underline this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. To show what must soon take place. That, word, that phrase, revelation of Christ, in the original Greek, that word revelation is apocalypsis, which means the unveiling or the uncovering. It's the unveiling or the uncovering. In other words, the book of Revelation is the unveiling of the true Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. What it's telling us is that up until this point, even at Christmas, when Jesus was wrapped in flesh and he came, just like that Christmas song says, the veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, right? Jesus was veiled in our flesh. Jesus was kind of held back in some things. We saw little glimpses, which we're going to talk about, of his glory. But now in Revelation, we see Jesus manifested in his full glory. And it's unbelievable what we see of our Savior in this book. This is brass knuckled, no holds barred, holding nothing back Jesus. This isn't baby Jesus crying in a manger. This is Jesus, the warrior king, the conqueror, the eternal head of the church. 
See, the point of Revelation is not to give us a specific timeline of events or to help us figure out if Putin or Trump or Biden is the Antichrist or if getting a Kroger card is actually the mark of the beast. The point of Revelation is to unveil or to pull back the curtain on history and to show us that in all the things that have unraveled in history, God has been at work in all of it and through all of it for his glory. And that's hard for us to comprehend because we look at some things through history and we think, man, there is some pretty nasty stuff that has taken place in history. Some nasty stuff that takes place. Wisnet was wrong. Jesus didn't come back on September 11th, 1988. But on September 11th, 2001, there were planes that flew into towers and into the Pentagon and took lives and changed the world forever, right? There are some things that happen in history that we look at and we say, God, if you're working in it and behind the scenes, what are you doing? Through all of this. And this is where hope and our faith comes into play. Is that even when the world is falling apart, church, we trust that there is a God who is not letting it completely unravel into oblivion. He is holding on to it and he is making all things new in him. And he has a plan that he is working despite all of the things that sin and Satan may throw at his way to unravel it. God still is in control. We see that in a microcosm at Christmas when even when Jesus came to earth, all the forces of evil were trying to stop it, right? When Herod went in and said, all of the babies born under the age of two must be murdered in Bethlehem. But what happened before that? An angel came and told Joseph, get this baby to Egypt and protect him. God protects his plan, church. God protects his plan. Revelation We've been given glimpses of Jesus' glory throughout Scripture and throughout history. But Revelation is a no-holds-barred, full unveiling of what we see that is going on on the other side right now. See, what we see in Revelation is not just a glimpse of what is one day going to happen. We see kind of that other side, that spiritual realm of what's been happening all along. These beasts and these dragons and these forces of darkness, they're still at work today. We're not waiting until Revelation begins for all of that to take place. We just aren't given the view of that yet. We've been given glimpses into that as we look at different parts of Scripture. But it's happening behind the curtain that we can't see in this living world right now. It's hair-raising stuff. And it's not just stuff that's, re, re, uh, that, that's reserved for the future. It's stuff that's taking place right now. Be sure of this, that every act of evil and every act of wickedness that takes place by the hand of humanity in this world has a spiritual component guiding it. That's why Paul says in Scripture that we are at war and we must put on our spiritual armor each day. We are in spiritual warfare against things that we can't see. And at times there have been glimpses, glimpses that God has allowed us to see through history where God's displayed his power over all of it. One of those glimpses was in the birth of Christ when the shepherds were given a view of the angels announcing the birth of Christ when it said light pierced through the darkness and they pronounced that Christ had come. That was a glimpse behind the veil to see the glory. We saw glimpses through Christ's miracles when he walked on water, when he turned water into wine, when he healed the sick, when he raised the dead, when he was transfigured on the mountain before his disciples. Those were glimpses. It was like the light just piercing the veil for us to see just a spot of his glory. We saw a glimpse at the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven when he conquered death and the grave. Where all we've ever known is death and finality. Jesus said, no, in my kingdom, there is life forevermore. That's a glimpse beyond the veil. 
All of those glimpses pointed to the true unveiled reality of Jesus who is our hope. And our hope is that one day we will not just see the unveiled glory of Christ, we'll live in its presence forever. I, I, I feel like I've had a, a few steps ahead of you preparing for this, but I don't know about you, but this excites me, okay? But you don't look excited right now, but that's okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. So let's move to the main teaching this morning. On this first day of Advent, I want to look at Christmas through the hope that lays before us. Yes, Christ, when he came to earth as a baby in a manger, that was hope brought to us for salvation. But that same Jesus is going to show up in glory. And that is our hope that our salvation will last forever. What started in the manger will be fulfilled forever in this glorious king that we have. Look at verse number 10 of uh, our passage. It says this. Where am I at? Let me grab it. <laughs> Actually, we're going to get to chat. We're going to get to verse 10 in a minute. We've got to get to verse number 9 first. See, Jesus number 1 is our eternal hope. Jesus number 1, the first point is that Jesus is our eternal hope. You say, yeah, you've been saying this all along. But Jesus truly is our eternal hope. He's not just hope. He's hope for eternity. That means he's not just hope for when we die. He is hope for here and now as well. Eternity encompasses it all. Jesus is our hope of eternity. See, one of the beautiful messages of Christmas is that the birth of Christ pierced through the darkness of time and brought hope to those who had been waiting for the Messiah to show up. Especially for the Jewish people who had been hoping and waiting for the Messiah. See, they were worn. They were broken. They lived for centuries in silence, not hearing a word from God. They were under oppression of the Roman government with nowhere to turn. And then the cry of a baby in Bethlehem in a pig trough, in a barn or a stable, changed everything. And then things really took off after Jesus started his life and his ministry and the death and the resurrection and then the birth of the church, just like we sang about in this song just a minute ago. But then the Jewish elite who denied that Christ was the Messiah, what did they do? They rose up to try to, squan to, try to squelch the light and return to the darkness. They tried to silence the gospel, and Rome tried to squash the movement of Christianity as well, but they couldn't stop Jesus. They couldn't keep him in the tomb, and they couldn't keep him from ascending into heaven, and they couldn't stop the church from continuing on because it was held, and it was progressed by the power of Jesus Christ. And at the time that Revelation is written, it looks like the church is about ready to take its knockout blow. It looks like the church is down and out for the count, and it is not doing very good. John writes in verse number 9, if you look at that real quick. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Now, when we think of an island, we think of vacation. This was not a vacation spot for John. I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We kind of paint a picture of where the church is at this point. All of the apostles have been martyred by this point. John is the only one that is left. And John is right now a, a resident of a prison camp, a work labor camp, where he worked all day and was tortured at night. And the reason for it, he says in verse number 9, was because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because he continued to preach the gospel where the Roman government had made it illegal, he was put into prison. He was a criminal to the world because he followed Jesus Christ. Nero was in power and he had made Christians the scapegoat for a lot of the issues that took place. And if you know Roman history, that Nero was over things when the city 
of Rome caught on fire and most of it burned to the ground and the glory of Rome was beginning to kind of fade and so he said, we will not let the Christians get away with this. We're going to make them the scapegoat. And so then all of a sudden public public view of Christians went from being people who just were there and were a little bit weird and didn't worship like they did to all of a sudden they are terrorists out to destroy everything about Roman life. After Nero, Domitian would rise to power and be even more ruthless and he would make it a law that not only are you to not worship Christ, you are to worship the Roman emperor because he's the only true God to which Christians knew that they could not and would not bow their knee to worship Domitian. And so they accepted the penalty of death. The church was in a season where they were being hunted. They were tired. They were reeling from not knowing what the future held for them. They believed the gospel. They believed Jesus. They had the hope that Jesus would come again. And he said this, but, he, but they, they, they hunkered on the words that man doesn't know the day or the hour. And they were getting tired of not knowing the day or the hour. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up to John in a prison cell, and he gives them a revelation of who he is and what he is doing in all of this. Now, there's an application for us in all of this because I realize that things aren't as dire for us today as the church in 2022 in the United States as they were for John and for the rest of the early church while he was on Patmos. We're not being hunted down because of our faith. We're not being, we're not, we don't have it, we don't have, the government doesn't have wanted posters out for anybody who bears the name of Jesus. But we do have our own struggles. We do have our own afflictions. And when John says in verse number nine, I share in your affliction, he's talking to us today as well. He's talking to the church, church that exists at his time, but he's also talking to the church proper that is going to exist through time. There will always be affliction for those who follow Christ. Jesus said it himself, right? That you will be persecuted. Blessed are me when you are persecuted and you are tried and you are ridiculed and you are reviled for my sake, right? But he says, I, John, your brother and your partner in the affliction. But then right after the affliction, what does he lay out? A word that gives us hope and in the kingdom of God. What he is saying is, no matter the affliction that you have, the kingdom is greater. There is a kingdom that is at, at, there is a kingdom that is at large that you are part of. But today we still wrestle with the same base questions of faith, don't we? We, we face powers that seemingly are vast and seem like they could overwhelm us. It may not be the Roman government. It may not be the government. It may not be a life and death thing right now to serve Jesus. But there are questions that really begin to chip away at the foundations of our faith. Maybe it's in the form of a chronic or a terminal illness that you're dealing with. Maybe it's in the form of, of a relationship struggle or an impending divorce or, or the possibility that you may lose a loved one soon or it's an addiction that you can't shake. Maybe it's a problem with a, a straying child. Maybe it's uncertainty at work or the impending loss of income. Or maybe it's uncertainty about what's going to happen with your church in the coming months. That's real. And now along comes Christmas where we're supposed to be happy and it's the season of perpetual hope and joy and everybody's supposed to smile and drink cocoa and eggnog if you're really weird. And everybody's supposed to just forget about their problems and everything is supposed to go away, right? And I'll be honest, I, I haven't been excited to prepare for the Christmas series. I haven't been excited for this Christmas season because what we're going to talk about in a little while, what we talked about last Sunday you know, it looks like things are going to change. Christmas next year for Graceway is going to look very different. Very different. 
And I haven't been excited. I feel like I'm on a clock. Like each message that I prepare right now is like I'm counting down to where I don't know the next time I'll be given that opportunity. Depending on the paths that we choose here. (laughs) I've been working and studying, preparing, knowing that this will be the last one that we gather like we are today. You know? But then you look at it and you say the hope of Jesus still remains, right? So how is that real, right? So we read verse number 9 and John says he's a partner in the affliction. He's, we are partners in the affliction with him. <laughs> but it also calls us to take rest in what, the rest of what he says as well. So let's look at verse number 10 and read through verse number 18. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And upon the, among the lampstands was one who was like the son of man. Dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. And his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like bronze and his fired in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of cascading or rushing waters. And he had seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp double-edged sword came out of his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And then he laid his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. I'm going to stop right there and allow us just a moment to say amen and thank you, Jesus, or whatever we need to do, because what we're getting right there is that unveiled glimpse of that warrior king who was also that baby in a manger, but now we see him fully unveiled in his power and his authority. In the middle of the darkness and the defeat and the suffering and the uncertainty that John and the rest of the church is going through, John is given an unforgettable vision of Jesus. And when that happens, all hope is restored. Right? He gets a vision of Jesus who is his hope. The one who he had seen before as the beloved disciple. But this time he is unveiled. He doesn't look like Jesus that walked with him for three years. He was different. Verse number 13 says that he was one like the son of man. But different than when he remembered him. Here we see a picture of Jesus that is not a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. But it is a Jesus whose hair is thick and white like wool. His voice is not a cry of a baby. It sounds like a trumpet. His eyes are not crying. They are piercing and they are like fire. He's holding seven stars in the palm of his hand. He's dressed like a warrior and wearing a sash of priestly authority. And when he spoke, a sword went out and his face was so bright it was like looking at the sun. Where's that figurine in our precious moments nativity? Right? Because that Jesus is the same Jesus that was in the manger. But when Jesus was in the manger, he was veiled. Now he is unveiled, but it is the same power at all times. This is the alpha and the omega, as it says up in verse number eight. He is the beginning and the end. And this vision of the unveiled Christ fills John first with fear, but then it fills him with hope. And it's a hope that is based upon a view of the unmatched power and the authority and the majesty of our Savior. And it's a hope that should drive us as his church as well. And I, am, and I say this because this is just coming from personal testimony. I am embarrassed at how many times I lose sight of the vision of the unveiled Christ. 
And how many times I look at the things that go on around me and the things that are going on around in my world and I think, God, how are you going to overcome this? Man, it's not a question of how. It's just a matter of when he's going to do it. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when he's going to do it and me trusting in him. See, Jesus is not that perpetual baby like Ricky Bobby thought in Talladega Nights. That baby is the warrior king. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king at the same time. And he's the beginning and he is the end of our hope. He's the completion of our hope. And he is our hope. Now let's look at this. Here's why he's our hope. He's our hope because he's our eternal head. And if you're looking at the time, you're like, oh man, this is going to go a little bit longer. I promise point number one is way longer than point number two and three together. Jesus is our eternal head. Like I said, this is a different glimpse of Jesus than the one that John had known when he followed him in the Gospels. So the Jesus of Gospels was a veiled Jesus. He was veiled in flesh, like the song says, right? Jesus of Revelation is Jesus unveiled. And it's all the potential glory in the baby and the manger on full display. See, the description that John gives us of Jesus in this passage isn't just him listing off the things that he's seeing. It's him listing off the full nature of our glorified Savior. Verses 10 through 13, we're given a description of Jesus' presence. What John first sees and what he begins to note is important to us. He says, he has a voice like a trumpet that speaks to the authority and to the trustworthiness of Jesus' words. So many times in scripture we see that God speaks in a still small voice. And that we are to receive him by faith. Being something that we cannot see but that we trust is there. Now Jesus is showing his power to John. And his voice is overriding all of the lies, all of the doubts, all of the problems. And you hear the voice of truth that pierces through all of that. Church, that same voice of truth still speaks to us from his word today. This is the voice of truth. When you begin to believe the lies of the world and you don't combat them with the voice and the truth that is contained in here, you will be defeated. But he speaks with a trumpet, with the authority and the trustworthiness. He's also wearing this long white robe which is a color of purity and it is a color of perfection. He has this gold sash around his chest, which is more mysterious to us as Gentiles. We're like, oh, white and gold, that's a pretty color combo. No, any Jewish reader that read this would know that the only people that got to wear gold sashes in their culture were the, was the great high priest of Israel. And so what we see, what John is saying here is that Jesus is the great high priest. When he's the great high priest, that means he is the great head of his church. That he has all power and he has all authority. He's telling us that Jesus stands in our stead as the priest. As the one that the New Testament tells us we can approach the throne of God with boldness because we have a high priest that knows our sufferings. And yet he did not give in to temptation. And in verses 14 through 16, we see more description of his attributes. We see that he has white hair that is thick like wool. If you're a guy like me that looks in the mirror and starts to see his hairline receding, hair like wool would be a wonderful thing, right? But back in those days, white hair symbolized great wisdom. If you were bald, you weren't considered to be, to be wise, I guess. I don't know. But in those days, he says, it is white like wool means there is wisdom. And he says, it is white like snow as well. 
I mean, it's wiser than wise and it's thicker than thick. And that means that there is no one that can combat the wisdom of Jesus. His eyes are like fire means that his insight penetrates more deeply than the sharpest laser into our souls. We understand the benefits of labor and uh, of laser and cyber knife and all of those things. When Jesus looks at us, he pierces into our souls and he sees the very depths of who we are. His face is brighter than the brightest sun and his voice is louder than the roaring waters means that this is someone with power that is beyond human comprehension. It's power that is greater than anything that can be conjured in in nature at all. That his face was brighter than looking at the sun and his words are louder than the roaring and rushing of waters. The words like a sword when he speaks means that he possesses the ability to pierce and destroy and separate all other words which rise against the truth of God. Folks, I tell you, Satan's lies are loosed here today. But when Jesus speaks, that sword slashes them all up and nothing is left but the truth of what Jesus speaks. All of this is a symbol of his power and his control over all things at all times. And where is Jesus standing when we look at this picture? He's standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. Which later on in chapter 2 we find out are a symbol of the seven churches of Asia Minor that are listed right there. It means he's standing right in the middle of them. And then the Bible says that he's holding seven stars in his right hand. And those seven stars are the angels or the messengers or possibly the pastors or the leaders of those churches. Which tells us this. Jesus is right here in the midst of every church. And he is holding his church. He is the head of the church. That with this all-powerful, all-conquering, all-knowing Savior as our head, the church will remain and it will stand eternal because he stands eternal. Jesus is in the midst of his church forever and he's holding his church in his hands forever. And I realize when you look around today and you listen to the experts and you, you just like look at what's going on, it looks like the church is losing right? Attendance is down in churches. Giving is down in churches. People are leaving the church by droves. People are looking at the church and saying, it's a, it's a harm more than it is a help. But friends, I want to tell you this, the head of the church will remain forever. And while he remains, the church will remain. Amen. I've heard it said before, the local expressions of the church have life cycles. But the church is eternal. What that means is the churches are planted, they grow, some of them die, but the head of the church lives forever and the head is working in the midst of all of it. Every bit of it. And there is not one thing that happens that unravels God's plan because he's in control. So Jesus is our eternal hope. He is our eternal head. And lastly, he is our eternal home. He is our eternal home. See, the beautiful miracle of the Christmas season is that it commemorates the incarnation of Christ, right? When Christ put on flesh, right? The fact that God put on flesh and left the glory of the courts of heaven and he condescended to humanity so that we could escape condemnation. That's the gospel. That's what Christmas began. It began the gospel plan. In other words, Jesus left his home so that we could find an eternal home in him. And if he hadn't left his home, we couldn't find that home in him. 
He came to us as a carpenter's son from the wrong side of the tracks in Nazareth, born in a stable, laid in a pig trough so everyone could approach him. Jesus didn't come born as a king in a palace somewhere where only nobility would feel comfortable around him. No, he came as lower than the low so there would be no one who felt so low that they could not approach their salvation. Get that. Never forget this. That Jesus condescended all the way to every member of humanity. Not just some, but to every member. Now, push that over and, and, and look at all of the other religions and all the other, other isms and all the other ideas of, uh, of, of faith and, and, and the idea of God. And in every other religion you find where man has to crawl up to God. Only in Christianity do you find that God came down to man. And when he came down, he didn't just hover over him. He came all the way down into the dirt and into the muck and into the mire and into the sawdust. So everyone could approach him. So everyone could find a home. He accepted curious children, wicked tax collectors, immoral adulterers, scandalous prostitutes, outcasts, lepers, destitute, the blind, the lame, and the beggar. All of them found a home in Jesus Christ. It didn't matter what your background was or how low to the ground you were because everyone was welcome and everyone is welcome to find a home in Jesus but the revelation unveiling of Jesus is much different. See, verse number 17 says that when John sees Jesus unveiled, what does he do? He falls to his feet like a dead man. He doesn't see a Jesus that he can approach. He sees a Jesus that he's terrified of. And he sees a Jesus that he has no business being around. Just like Isaiah when he saw God in Isaiah chapter 6. He knew it was Jesus, but again, this was a much different one than the one that he had felt drawn to lean into his chest at the Last Supper. But what is this warrior king? What does this majestic, powerful, fearsome Jesus do? The Bible says he reaches down and with his right hand. And what's in his right hand at the moment? The seven stars, the seven churches. And with that same hand, he touches the shoulder of John and he says, do not be afraid. That same hand that is holding his church reached down to John and he said, do not be afraid because I am yours and you are mine. I am the one who holds the keys to death and life and hell. I'm the one who conquered. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the king of kings. I'm the victorious Lord. I am the son of God. I'm that same man that you leaned in upon my chest at the Last Supper and you can lean in on it right now too. Even though I've got the white hair and I've got the sword and I've got all that, you can still lean in upon me because when you're with me, John, you're home. And church, when you're with Jesus, you're home. You're home in him. In other words, I'm the same Jesus you leaned in. And I'm still the same Jesus you found a home in as we minister together. And he says, I'm the first, the last, the living one, the eternally living one. I was dead, but look now, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. In other words, you're safe with me. You're home in me. You are forever home in me. All of this is important because 
It's significant to us too. It wasn't just significant to John. It's significance to us too. Because you may look at it and say, man, why didn't Jesus just appear in the way that John knew him earlier? And then maybe morph into something else. Here's why. Because he wasn't showing up to let John know that he was getting ready to make everything right. He wasn't showing up to let John know, hey, I'm getting you out of Patmos. No, John's going to stay at Patmos. Things are going to get harder for the church. John's going to still die a martyr. And so what Jesus needed to do was give John a picture of a warrior who does not lose. Because when John faces the hardship, he needs to know that he's facing it with someone who has a plan and a future for him. Jesus wasn't trying up, trying to show up to bring John a warm and fuzzy comfort here. He was showing up to say, John, I need to show you what's going to have to take place. But I want you to take hope in the fact that I'm going to win. And in me, you do too. Jesus shows up in power and majesty and love because that gave John something to hope in to endure what was to come. See, in times of persecution and hardship, you don't need sentimental Jesus that makes you feel warm at night. You need the warrior king that tells you that with me, you will persevere. You need a Jesus that despite all the shaking and quaking that this world can do, you know that Jesus is your hope and your home. In the middle of it all. And this is what was true for John at Patmos. is still true for us today, church. Jesus is our forever hope. He is our forever head. And he is our forever home. See, God has everything under control. Everything is working out as he has planned. Everything is working out according to his plan. You say, hold on for a second. You mean that, John, you mean that God makes all of these tragedies happen? No. <laughs> I mean that in the midst of all of these tragedies, it doesn't unfurl what God is doing and what he is going to do. That he is over it all and he can redeem everything for his glory still. God has it all under control. Ephesians 1 says this, that in him we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This doesn't mean that God's orchestrating everything like a script in a movie. Again, catch this. This doesn't mean that God is orchestrating everything like a script in a movie. He doesn't have every day written out in history. But he orders our steps, meaning this, that when we step, even when we step out of line, he redeems that step out of line for his glory. All things are working together for good. And here's another one that we are promised in Matthew. He says, aren't two, Jesus said, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted and all been numbered. You can't get much more detail level than that, right? God knows every bird that falls out of the sky. He knows when every bird dies. He knows some of the birds that we hit with our car too. You can't get much more detail level than that. But he also knows every head that falls out of our, every hair that falls out of our head. I thought about just to really get involved with this scripture today, I thought about cleaning my brush out at home, but I didn't. I'm going to save that nastiness for later on. But we lose hair every day, don't we? That's a running tab that God is keeping of us. God knows everything about us. Everything. We are at home in him. There is nothing he doesn't know about us, yet he invites us in. So he's our forever hope, he's our forever head, and he's our forever home. So as we close out today, I want you to take heart in the hope of the unveiled Jesus of the second advent. At Christmas, let's be reminded that, man, that baby is beautiful, but it was just getting started, right? This is the head. This is my savior. This is my warrior king right here. 
that I can follow and I can trust. So you may feel like you're on the verge or right in the middle right now of your own personal tribulation, but understand that nothing is outside of God's purpose. Nothing is outside of God's will to turn into his glory. On the island of Patmos, Jesus didn't give John relief from dire circumstances. Instead, he gave him an unforgettable vision of the Son of God. Again, God doesn't always promise to deliver us from our circumstances. What he does promise us is his presence and his promise of victory in light of it all. We have that same kind of vision of Jesus. We can worship him in any circumstances. This is what we need at Christmas and at every day of our lives. We need the unforgettable vision of the victorious Savior. So questions this morning as we close out. Have you found your eternal hope in Christ? Have you placed hope and trust and faith in Christ to be your Savior? Are you following your eternal head? He's the head of the church. He's the head of all things. And he has promised that he is in the midst of his church and he is holding on. The interesting thing about this, all seven of those churches, all seven of those churches that are listed there, they're not in operation today. But the church, the church is in operation. And throughout history it has looked like there have been dark days and it looked like the church was about to be done in. But guess what? The church remains. Because that is Jesus' chosen agency. It's his bride. And he protects his bride. And are you following or have you found your eternal home in Christ? If you don't know Christ, come today to him. Find your home in him. Make yourself at home in him and trust him every day. Father, have your will. Thank you for listening today. At Grace Way, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.